0: Good morning. Cat. Yeah. What you said, sister. Thank you. About the church leading you in worship. That was amazing. Donafro, were you at? Thank you, man. I never I never heard you tell the story that way. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how I love, 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 love your word. I love all of it. I love the beginning of your Bible. I love the end of the Bible. I love the middle of the Bible. I love Romans chapter nine. There is not a single text, not a single sentence in any of these pages that I do not find glorious. And though I find your text glorious, and though I feel like I could get lost in the Bible forever, which is what I plan on doing, despite all of those truths, Romans chapter 9 has hung over my head this week with weight. For so long, I have found Romans 9 to be like a life preserver to me that keeps me afloat, that encourages me, that exhorts me, that feels like an almighty hug from you, Lord. And yet I'm also aware of the various interpretations that might lead people to feel doomed and flattened by Romans chapter 9. And so, Lord, I pray that not a single soul in this room this morning would feel doomed and flattened by your word but instead that we would feel the everlasting arms of our almighty potter all over our lives, specifically just embracing us with love. And so as we position ourselves underneath your word this morning, we submit totally to it and we recognize that you are the potter and we are the clay. I pray that we would really believe that, Lord, that we would believe that we're just clay in your hands. And once we've taken that huge step of faith to believe that we are the clay in your hands, I pray that we would feel that we're the clay in your hands. Right here, right now. It's in the precious name of Jesus that all God's people prayed. So a couple of things before we uh, jump into Romans chapter 9. The first thing is, We've only got two weeks left in the Jazz Club. So, yes, yes, yes. In two weeks, don't come here. Next Sunday is our last week here. And the week after that, we're going to be in the Depot. And it's going to be awesome. And I feel like I keep glossing over this because there's so much excitement in front of the life of Frontier Church. Um, In a couple weeks, when we relaunch at the Depot, it's going to be Advent. So... Break out those ugly Christmas sweaters if you got them. Bake the Christmas cookies and let's bring that Christmas cheer in a couple weeks. Um, if you got a Bible, like you know, we're in the book of Romans right now. Particularly, we're in Romans chapter 9. Get there. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. We'll have it on the screen for you. Um, my kids right now are obsessed with stickers. There's just stickers everywhere in the, in the Dyke household, like Paw Patrol stickers. Everywhere, my daughter Della is all. She's all about her Paw Patrol stickers. Uh, yesterday around noon, so it's been like almost 24 hours. Della thought it would be really funny to grab all of her stickers. And to take them and to just, like, put them all over my face, right? So, I don't know, she thought it was funny. She put one on my nose, put one on my forehead, you know, put the whole thing, just stickers all over. You know, I took them off. We laughed, and we had a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, almost 24 hours later, I'm here in the morning. I'm getting set up, and uh, Chad comes up to me, and he sneaks around behind me, and he starts playing with my ear. I'm like, Chad? Said it like that too, Chad. I was like, What are you doing, man? And he peels something off my ear and he shows it to me. And it's a little Paw Patrol sticker. And I'm just like in awe of the sovereignty of God. I'm like, How did that survive all night tossing and turning while I was thinking about Romans 9 in bed? How did that survive a shower? It was amazing. And uh, as you go throughout your week this morning, Romans 9 is going to be a bit like that sticker. It's going to be Wednesday, a couple days later. You're going to be in the shower or tossing and turning in bed or at work. And you're going to peel that sticker off and wonder, how in the world has this stuck with me all week long? It's been like that for me. Right? As I as I've done my various things, gone my various directions, had my various meetings, Romans 9 has constantly been like bam, 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 bam. So later this week, when you peel that sticker off and you think, what was Romans 9 all about? I want to be super clear. So we'll get there in just a second. Hang with me. Romans chapter 9, where in the world are we? Let me recap us really quickly. In Romans chapter 8, the chapter Right before nine, like you know, because you can count. In Romans chapter eight, what Paul does is he drops all these glorious riches, all these promises of the gospel all over the church. He says, You are justified. You are filled with the spirit. You will inherit the new creation. You will be conformed to the image of Jesus because God works together for good everything that ever happens to you. And you are more than a conqueror. All of these amazing truths that just ring over your life like a bell. And then, like Luke so eloquently preached about last week, there's a temperature change in Romans chapter nine. All of a sudden, after ascending to the top of all these mountainous claims of the gospel, Paul begins Romans chapter 9 with tears in his eyes. He's weeping and he's sniffling with each passing sentence. And the reason why Paul is gutted at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 is because there's a really big elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room in these Roman house churches? Well, like we've been telling you for the last, year or however long we've been in Romans, these churches in Rome, five or six house churches, they're these weird little multicultural communities that transcend Rome and transcend Judaism that are gathering together all throughout Rome, and they're made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from every walk of life, people with different backgrounds, and in each of these churches, there's something peculiar going on. It doesn't matter which of these five or six Roman house churches you rolled into, for For whatever reason, in these house churches, there are more Gentiles than Jews. And there's a tension because of that. And that tension is so thick that you could cut it with a knife. And that tension is this question. If Jesus is the Messiah who descended from Israel... Then why has so much of Israel rejected Jesus? If Jesus is the descendant from Israel, where are they? Why aren't there more? You can see why this was a pressing question for Paul. God promised to give Israel a Messiah, so did he go back on that promise? Or as Paul phrases the question earlier in chapter 9, has the word of God failed? Is the hard-heartedness of Israel evidence that God doesn't keep his word? Is God not faithful to his promises? You can see why this is a big question, not just for Paul, but for you, right? So let me phrase this question in the form of a story. I'm a, I'm, maybe I told this story a couple of years back, so if I did, forgive me, but I just couldn't get this story out of my head all week long as I was preparing for Romans chapter nine. But a couple of years ago, um, I had this little wrestler on the wrestling team that I coached. And when I say little, I mean little. He was this scrawny little freshman kid who was super lovable. He had these big brown eyes, but the dude was scrawny. So like, he was like, so the next biggest kid was the teeny tiny 106 pounder, you know, like the little rug rat that you see out there. That kid would have been about 15 or 20 pounds bigger than this other kid. So this kid was just a twig. He was malnourished. He was scrawny. And because everybody was so much bigger than this kid, he didn't win a match all year, like literally all year long. And how, how could he? He was like he was like 90 pounds, 85 pounds. How do you win a match with that much weight disparity? He just didn't win a match all year long, but he stuck with wrestling. And so it was Christmas time a couple of years ago and he had just gotten a new fish tank and it was like all he could talk about. I don't know why. He was just like, all about fish 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 just talked my ear off he was a little scrawny freshman and so maybe the other bigger older wrestlers didn't give him the time of day so he'd just find me and he'd be like dikey 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 i got this fish tank let me show you this picture of my fish tank and i just let him talk my ear off because i was just excited to see the little booger happy you know and um there was one saturday where he kept on telling me dikey later today after the wrestling tournament My dad's going to take me to PetSmart, and we're going to buy some fish so we can finally fill the fish tank. And I was like, cool, man. And then later that day, he obviously had a rough tournament. He went out there for his first wrestling match. He got pinned, of course. But he had three wrestling matches, so he got a second chance. Went out there for a second wrestling match. He got pinned, of course. But in the back of my mind, I was like, it's okay. It's okay. He's got PetSmart to look forward to you know, thank God for the fish, he's got pet smart to look forward to, you know, the third match came around, and uh, he got pinned again, and again, I was like, thank God for the fish, you know, that's gonna keep that kid afloat tonight, man, and uh, after the weekend, the weekend goes by, Monday rolls around, and I'm in the wrestling room with the kids, and during practice, during warm-ups, I came up to him and jogged next to him as we jogged around for warm-ups, and I said, hey, dude, how were the fish, man, like, been talking all about those fish, dude. Which ones did you get? Did you get the striped ones? Did you get the orange ones? Did you get the little ugly sucker fish that you stick onto the side? Like, which one did you get, man? And uh, he lowered his head. And he said, he said, uh, oh, Dike, I'm just not really into fish anymore. I was like, really? Because a couple days ago, like, that's the only thing in the world that mattered to you. And so I was like, bro, fish are cool, man. Like, how can you not be into those? Come on, man, what's going on? And he said, Dikey, just let it go. So I let it go for a lap. <laughs> and then a lap later, I'm jogging next to him, and I, and I said, hey, man, a couple of days ago, all you could talk about where the fish in the tank, and now you're not into fish. What's going on? And he said, well, after the wrestling tournament on Saturday, my dad said he changed his mind. He said he thought I should actually have to win a wrestling match to get fish in the tank. And It's like, you know, it's been two years since that happened. And it still just makes me hot thinking about that. Because you don't do that. Like, especially as a dad, you don't make a promise and then take that promise back when your kid doesn't measure up in a stupid sport. You don't promise to fill the fish tank and then just leave the fish tank empty because your kid got pinned and underperformed. And this story is really, really important. And the reason why this story is so important is because it helps you feel what otherwise you couldn't feel. It helps you feel what the average first century Jew felt when she looked around the church in Rome and wondered, why is the tank so empty? Where are all my Jewish family members? Where are all my Jewish friends? did Did the Savior not descend from Israel? Is he not the Savior of Israel? Is God unfaithful to his promise? Did God buy the fish tank for the scrawny, undersized kid, the nation of Israel, and then promise to fill it with all of these fish, and then just change his mind when they had a bad wrestling tournament? Or to phrase the question a little different, Is God nothing more than a bad wrestling dad? Paul has an answer to that question. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm preaching verses 14 through 24, but I'm gonna have Casey read verses one through 24 because I want you to see the overall literary context within which Paul's making his argument. So, Case, whenever you're ready, man, take it away. Thanks, brother. You You guys can have a seat. (laughs) We've got a lot of work to do. Breathe. And let's walk into the text. Let's walk into it together. We'll get into the deep here, okay? So we've got to start this morning with our exposition of the text where Paul started last week in the beginning of chapter 9. Is it unjust that God promised Israel a Savior But this savior has not saved all of Israel. And Paul's answer to this question, spoiler alert, is a resounding, fiery, articulate, and intense no. The word of God has not failed and God is not unjust. God can sovereignly do whatever he chooses to do with the clay that he has made. This answer is important because Paul anticipates his Jewish members responding to this argument with an apoplectic question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there on injustice on God's part? And again, a resounding fiery no. By no means is God unjust. And what Paul's going to do is he's not just going to say, no, God's not unjust, and then dodge the question. In order to answer the question, what Paul's going to do is he's going to tell three Old Testament stories. And each of these Old Testament stories is a core story from the Bible. And in each of these three stories, Paul's going to say the same thing, but he's going to say these things from a different angle. The thing he's going to say with each story is God is just and God can sovereignly do whatever he desires with the clay that he has made. And if the Israelites sovereignly, or sorry, if the Israelites stubbornly refuse to place their faith in Jesus, then God is totally just to make them into a vessel of wrath and he's not breaking his promise to Israel. And on the contrary, If a dirty, barbaric Roman Gentile places his faith in Jesus, God is perfectly righteous to make them into a vessel for mercy, and he's not breaking his promises. In other words, Paul is very wordy, he's very long-winded, but what he's saying is really simple. God doesn't care what clay you're made from. In Paul's context, this would have been a very, very, very obvious allusion to ethnicity and race. And God doesn't care what clay you're made from. It's all spoiled clay. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's all spoiled clay. So don't you dare think that God will spare you because of your clay. Whether that's your upbringing in Judaism, how much you go to church when you grow up, or how religious you think you are. Three stories one point. So we'll start with the first story, which are verses 15 through 16. This is the story of Moses. Paul reminds him of this story by saying, "'For God says to Moses, "'I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. "'So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy.'" this text comes from the book of Exodus all the way back in your Old Testament. And at this point in the Exodus story, when God says this to Moses, it's a very clear, big moment in the Exodus story. God has just covenanted with Israel on Mount Sinai. It's this beautiful, terrifying sequence. And Israel, in response to covenanting with God, promptly cheats on him by building a golden calf. Clearly, God's people deserve to be destroyed so that God can start from scratch to build his people. But what ends up happening in the story is that Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. The people repent and God in a surprising move shows mercy on them. This makes Paul's point really clear. So then, it depends not on human will or we might say winning the wrestling match. It depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy. This is obvious because if it depended on will or exertion, then the people who just built the golden calf would have been absolutely toast. But it doesn't depend on these things, it depends on God who has mercy. So when Israel repents and turns back to God, despite how compromised they are as people, God still has every right to sovereignly choose to shower them with insane mercy rather than dealing with them according to their works. That's the first story. You can feel Paul's message coming through. The second story Paul tells makes the same point, but from a different angle. Watch this. Story number two comes from verses 17 through 18. This is the story of Pharaoh. Quote, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, another conclusion Paul's drawing, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So if you're familiar with your Old Testament, this quote also comes from the Exodus story, and it comes from the point in the story where God hardens Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardens his heart towards God and God further hardens Pharaoh's heart so that God can publicly and extravagantly do what Paul says he did, which is raise him up to display his power by dismantling the enslaving nation of Egypt through the plagues in a way that gives him a lot of glory. What we see is God sovereignly hardening a hard heart. Note, we don't see God hardening a soft heart. And it's not, God doesn't sovereign, he doesn't harden a heart that loves him and desires him and worships him and then say, nope, sorry, and hardens it. He hardens, further hardens a hard heart towards God. And God has every right to sovereignly harden whomever he wills, even if it's the king of Egypt. God shows no partiality. He's not impressed with your status. He's not impressed with how many Bibles you own. He's not impressed that you're a Lutheran or a Baptist or a Catholic. He's not impressed with your clay. That's not how he rolls. You with me? So what do we see when we look at both of these stories, when we look at Pharaoh's story and then we look at Moses' story? We see that whether it's Israel or Pharaoh, God's sovereign decision to harden or soften individuals is not arbitrary. It's not God closing his eyes and throwing a dart at the board. It's not God closing his eyes and playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo, damn a tiger by his toe. That's not what God is doing. It's not arbitrary. We see that God's sovereign choice to harden or soften his clay is based on his own sovereign free will and the condition of faith in the individual. God doesn't care how religious pharaoh is if pharaoh doesn't exercise faith in god god has every right to mold him into a vessel prepared for destruction god doesn't care how horrifyingly pesky israel is right after they cheat on god if they return back to him with repentance and faith then god has every right to sovereignly show them mercy it doesn't depend on human will It doesn't depend on human exertion. It depends on God who shows mercy. And this burns like sulfur in the ears of his Jewish listeners in Rome. It's like, because what Paul is doing is he's taking their core stories from the Old Testament that they grew up on. Paul is taking those core stories from the Old Testament, and he's telling those stories in a way that doesn't put them at the center of the story. He's telling those stories that don't put their ethnicity at the center of the story. He's telling the stories in a way that doesn't put the clay at the the center of the story, but puts faith in God and the sovereignty of God at the center of the story, because that's the point that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making is that God is not— unjust for hardening the nation of Israel, and he's not breaking his promise to them because God's promise has always been towards those who exercise faith in him. That's Paul's point in Romans 9. That's the entire point of the book of Romans. God's promise has always been towards those who exercise faith in him. Those are God's chosen people. And God's wrath has always been for those who reject him with unbelief, whether those people descended from precious Abraham or not. And so Paul anticipates a venomous response from some of the church in Rome. Well, if God just hardens the clay and does whatever he wants, then what's the point? If, if God hardens the hearts of those who reject him, then how can we find fault in them? To which Paul says, check your tone, bro. That's the wrong question. And that question brings us to the third story that Paul tells to make his point. This is in verse, verses 19 through 21. This is the story of Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Paul says, let me guess what you're going to say. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Wrong question. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of this same lump one for honorable use? and another for dishonorable use. So what Paul's doing is he's using that question, well, who can resist his will, and saying that's the wrong question. Don't talk back to God like that. And the reason why Paul says it that way is because of a beautiful story in your Old Testament from Jeremiah chapter 18. It's this beautiful story where Jeremiah the prophet slips into this almost hallucinogenic vision of God, where Jeremiah walks into a potter's house, and he sees this potter sit down at the wheel, and he begins to go to work on a lump of clay. It's this beautiful vision, and so if we want to get to the heart of what Paul is saying in Romans 9, we have to get to the heart of what Jeremiah was saying in Jeremiah chapter 18. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read all 11 verses from Jeremiah chapter 18. This is bad form for public speaking, right? You're never supposed to quote long stories in the middle of a sermon, but gosh darn it, I'm doing it. You guys are grown adults, and you can hang with me. So here's all 11 verses. We're going to have Casey read these 11 verses for us. I want you to hear this story from a different voice. Jeremiah chapter 18. This is what Paul's referencing, verses 1 through 11. The word So this is, this is clearly perfectly in line with the, the point that Paul has been making all of Romans chapter 9. The point that God, know, God owes no man nothing because of his clay. The whole lump of clay is spoiled. This is why Paul says in Romans that all have fallen short of the glory of God. So again, I can't make this point more clearly. He doesn't care if you grew up in church. He doesn't care if you are Israel. He doesn't care if you're a physical descendant of Jacob. If they turn Away from God, God has every sovereign right to take that clay and to make it into a vessel of destruction. And likewise for the Romans and the Roman churches... Even if you're part of a barbaric kingdom or a nation like Nineveh or an unbelieving family, if you turn to God in faith, God has every right to show you mercy. That's the essence of Jeremiah's vision. That's what Jeremiah sees at the potter's house, this vision of God at the potter's wheel with spoiled and ugly clay in his hands. And he takes that lump of clay and he reworks it into a beautiful vessel. God has every right to do this even with clay that you think should be thrown away. He has every right to bestow his promises even on you when you turn to him by grace through faith alone. You can see that this whole faith alone thing isn't Paul's idea, right? Like this this whole faith alone thing is it is not like a, a newfangled New Testament. I did that that stand just gave up on that Bible, didn't it? <laughs> Jeez, let's pray. (laughs) Oh man, where am I at? Okay. Oh, faith alone. You know, the center of our faith. Um, You can see that this whole faith alone thing isn't like Paul's new idea in Romans, right? It's not this newfangled, New Testament, new idea that came to Paul's mind. It's Jeremiah's idea. Turn to God by faith. Rework you into a vessel for mercy. It's... It's Moses' idea in Exodus. It's God's idea in the front of the Bible all the way to the back of the Bible. This is Paul's point in verses 22 through 23, right? Paul says, what if? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with a lot of patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand, even us whom he has called. Watch this. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Paul's saying that God has endured spoiled clay for a really, really long time. Because God is super duper, duper patient. God has endured vessels of wrath. For a very, very, very long time. And through his vessel of mercy, Jesus, these very Gentiles, who he's been so patient with, have actually turned to Jesus. And like spoiled clay in the hands of the potter, God can do whatever he sovereignly desires to do. And it seems good to the potter to rework them, not into a vessel for wrath, but a vessel for mercy. Do you see Paul's point? Three stories, three different angles, one point. Paul is super wordy. Paul is super intellectual. Paul is smarter than you. Paul is smarter than me. His argument is dense. His argument is complex. His argument is extraordinarily mature, but what Paul is saying rather long windedly is actually very simple God is sovereign. And he is not unfaithful when he withholds salvation from the Israelites who reject him. And God is not unfaithful for extending salvation to Gentiles who embrace him through faith. In other words, here's Romans 9 for dummies like me. God is faithful. And he never, ever, ever breaks his promises. He never breaks his promises. And your life is going to be filled with broken promises. Filled with broken promises. People make wedding vows and then walk out. Job promotions get promised and then taken away. Parents buy kids fish tanks and leave them empty. Friends promise to be with you for the long haul and then backstab you. This is what people do. They eat, sleep, breathe, and break promises. They give you their word and they take it back. People are unfaithful and fickle and changeable and people break promises. That's why your life is full of broken promises. And every (sighs) every stinking one hurts. Every broken promise hurts. Promises have direct access to the heart. They lodge themselves deep in the substructure of our hearts. And then when life gets dark, these promises shine forth like northern stars in our futures. And we look at them, and they motivate us to keep pressing on and keep moving forward and to not give up. And so we find ourselves daydreaming about promises while we're at work, daydreaming about promises during tough weeks, daydreaming about promises when we feel like giving up, daydreaming, daydreaming, daydreaming. And with each passing day, promises weave themselves more deeply into the fabric of our hearts so that when the promise is ripped away from you, it feels like they ripped your freaking heart out the promise of a fish tank filled with fish from your parents, it's not about the fish. It's not about the fish. It's about the life preserver. The promise is a life preserver. When you're drowning in life, you hold on to that promise and it keeps you above the water. When you're an undersized freshman who loses and loses and loses and the meats are so hard, And you have to go out there in front of a whole audience of people and nothing but a singlet. And you get put on your back in front of people and pinned. And you've got to stand there with your hand to your side while his hand gets raised and it gets really dark. You hold on to that fish tank. And so when that fish tank gets left empty and that promise that promise gets broken, it's not about the fish. It's about having your life preserver ripped away from you so that you feel like you're drowning again. Drowning. Wondering if you can ever trust a promise again. Wondering if you can ever trust authorities in your life because people are unfaithful and fickle and changeable and people break promises. People break promises, God doesn't. God's not a bad wrestling dad. God's not going to take away the fish that he promised you because you had a bad wrestling mate. God is faithful. He's a man of his word. He won't let you down. He won't change his mind. He's sovereign. He won't pull a fast one and tell you, hey, I know I told you that all these promises would be yours by faith alone, but actually you had to win some wrestling matches. Never mind, we're going to leave the tank empty. That's not Paul's God. That's not your God, because our God is Jesus in the flesh, and our God is awesome. Jesus is amazing. He is the vessel of mercy. By faith alone, you are grafted into him. By faith alone, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. So later this week, when you feel the sticker of Romans 9 behind your ear, and you pull that thing out, you think about God's sovereignty and his sovereign right to do whatever he so desires let me just give you one piece of application arise and go down to the potter's house in the middle of your work day in the middle of a prayer in the shower while your foot flopping on your bed arise And go to the potter's house and stand there in the doorway shoulder to shoulder with Jeremiah until you see play before you the vision that played out before Jeremiah. Until you see this strange man walk up to his potter's wheel and sit down and pick up fallen clay that you think deserves to be destroyed and just watch what your potter does with that clay rather than throwing away that spoiled clay. Rather than just tossing it out like you would, watch closely as a smile spreads across that potter's face. Watch closely as a light bulb goes off above his head. And he takes that spoiled clay and begins to work that into a beautiful vessel of mercy because he can sovereignly do whatever he desires. And this is hard to believe because you know exactly who that potter is, don't you? It's Jesus, your Savior, your joy, your hope. And you know exactly what that clay in his hands is, don't you? That spoiled, ugly clay, that's your life. And it's been marred by every sin imaginable, sins of your own volition, sins of folly, sins of failure. It's even been marred by things that have been done to you. And yet there's your potter. Sitting at his wheel, gladly and diligently reworking the mess of your life into a beautiful shape. That's what it means to be a new creation. That's the gospel. And so church, we are sinners in the hands of a joyful God. Sinners in the hands of a very, very joyful God humming while he sits at the potter's wheel with you in his hands, singing while he shapes you, tapping his foot with glee as he molds you like an artist, smiling as he shapes you, eyes beaming and gleaming while he works together all things for your Christ-likeness, shaping you into a vessel for mercy. And maybe for the first time this morning, maybe you can feel the potter's hands on your life. Maybe God is not as distant as you thought he was. Maybe you're not as autonomous as you thought you were. Maybe you're not as sovereign as you thought you were. And maybe, for the first time, you realize that his hands, the hands of the artist, have been on every square inch of your life, whether or not you've been too distracted to notice it. Right here. Right now. So, the Lord bless you and keep you, Frontier Church. The Lord bless you and keep you. And may your fish tank be filled with all of the promises of Romans. You are justified. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You will inherit the new creation. You will be worked into the image of Jesus because God does all things for the good of those who love him. You will be more than a conqueror you will be in his hands a beautiful vessel of mercy. God won't leave your tank empty, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't want any God's hands on me besides yours. It delights me to say that you're sovereign. It delights me to say that you do what you want. It delights me to say that my future is in your hands and it delights me to know that the sovereign God who does all things for his glory through Pharaoh, through Moses, through Jeremiah and through me is the God who sits at the wheel like a joyful, happy artist shaping, molding, And we know what that image is. We know what the pottery is that he's shaping us into. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the pottery. You're making us into the image of Jesus. Wow. So in the precious name of Jesus, we pray all things. Amen. Check, 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 Mike, Mike, check. check. Still. (laughs)